Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and thanks for joining us on today's edition of Back to the Bible Canada. Today, Dr. Neufeld will be continuing his five-week series on Romans, the heart of the gospel. So let's open our Bibles to Romans 1, verses 8 to 15, as Dr. Neufeld continues teaching us on the marks of spiritual leadership. Not long ago, I read an article on leadership and was struck by the following statement. The author said, Poor leadership cripples businesses, ruins economies, destroys families, loses wars, and can bring the demise of nations. I think that's a fair assessment. The quality of leadership is vital in almost every human endeavor. I wonder what poor leadership does to the church or the proclamation of the gospel. Please don't misunderstand me. The fate of the universal church will, in the final analysis, not be determined by men and women, but by Christ. He is the head of the church, and his leadership is always excellent. But more than one ministry has been both harmed or blessed by the quality of leadership. The same can be said about any local church, any missions agency, and about a host of parachurch ministries. Leadership is paramount. But as we have seen, leadership is more than simply holding a position or having a title. You can lead in your home. You can set an example at work that transforms your work environment. You can influence relationships, change your neighborhood. Leadership, both good and bad, happens almost everywhere human beings gather. What is spiritual leadership? In our last look at Romans 1, 8 to 15, we saw that good leadership begins by leading people with thankfulness. Leaders notice that Jesus has accomplished in the lives of those who lead many positive things. Secondly, we notice that good leaders then move to prayerfulness. They're consistent in their heartfelt prayer for those they lead. What happens next? In Paul's introduction to Romans, he gives us a number of principles for effective spiritual leadership. Let's go back to Romans 1, starting at verse 8. Paul says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. There we saw our first principle. Good leaders are thankful for the spiritual progress of those whom they lead. Now to verse 9. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you. There was our second principle. Good leaders nurture and develop an inner prayer life in which they faithfully pray for those they lead. Now to verse 10. Always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may succeed in coming to you. So here's the third principle of Christian leadership. It is the desire to be in close proximity with those whom we lead. Notice Paul's prayer. God, let me spend time with these people. He's looking for a way to meet the Roman believers whom he has not met before. He's not content to pray for them from afar. He longs for personal interaction with those to whom God has called into ministry. I'm often amazed at how many people, and that may include pastors and and elders or other officials on a church board, who actually don't know the people they are leading. I mean, they haven't prayed with them, spent time with them, mentored them, encouraged them, even heard their testimonies and become familiar with their stories. And for that reason, they don't know what their struggles are or where their victories and their greatest failures are. Leaders actually enter into the world of others. Good spiritual leaders don't stand at a distance. They always find ways into the felt experiences of people. Paul wants to remedy the distance between him and the Roman believers. He is determined that even though it may be difficult, he's going to come to Rome. 
Now, it is true that Paul saw the Roman church in terms of opportunity. He saw this church as a launching pad through which he could go to Spain and drive the gospel deeply into Europe. Perhaps after the Roman believers would get to know Paul, they might financially support his ministry. There was a strategic opportunity in Rome, and Paul doesn't hide this intention from them. But lest we think that he's simply being mercenary, this is the only reason he wanted to make his way to Rome, well, if there's any misunderstanding, he corrects that. Verse 11 says, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. We're beginning to see Paul's leadership style. First, he's mentioned his thankfulness for them. Second, his habitual prayerfulness for them. Third, his desire to fellowship with them. And now he mentions his desire to help them grow spiritually. So a fourth area of his positive spiritual leadership is this. He is serving or ministering for the benefit of God's people. I wonder if you've noticed that we have a certain vocabulary that we put into Christian activity. People often say, I'm in Christian ministry. Nothing wrong with that, except I wonder if you've noticed that this word actually has another usage in our culture. The word ministry is used in government all the time. It can refer to an office or a bureaucracy or even an organization. We call it government ministry. And how easy it is to think that way of Christian leadership. I have a position either in the church or in some area of importance, and because of that, I'm empowered to make decisions. And sometimes I have to make unpopular decisions. And so we become decision makers rather than servants and ministers to the real needs of people. Look, I know that decision-making goes with leadership. But at the risk of belaboring this point, what is often missing in our leadership is what Paul identifies. He models the kind of leader who knows the people well and is acting not for his benefit, but for the spiritual strengthening of God's people. God's people will be closer to Christ because of his leadership. That's what spiritual leaders have in mind when they lead. The question is not how organized Paul was or whether he's able to make what we refer to as the hard call, or whether he had some kind of breathless, futuristic vision for his ministry. I mean, all that is good in and of itself. But in Paul's case, he wanted to impart some spiritual gift to them. Now, does that mean he wanted them to have the gift of evangelism or service or prophecy? Or does that mean he wanted to use one of his own spiritual gifts to strengthen them? Well, he doesn't say. We know that in Ephesians 4, Paul describes what kind of a blessing God-appointed leaders provide for the church. Ephesians 4, 11 to 12 says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. And so for Paul, the very nature of his leadership meant that he wanted God's people to have all the equipment needed for them to accomplish what God had for them to do. And after he had spent time with them, and then he had left them, Paul knew the Christians in Rome would be more mature in their faith, would have a greater unity and love for each other, would understand how their spiritual gifts would reach out to the lost. They would think about the time Paul was with them, and they'd say, boy, I'm so glad he was here. He changed our lives. We've never been the same since. Now, that's Christian leadership. So are you a leader? Do you know what the people you lead need to be effective? Are you helping them accomplish all that Christ wants them to accomplish? Or are you serving yourself? Once we answer that, we get a sense of whether we're leading in Christ's way or not. Now comes the fifth mark of effective leadership. 
It's called humility. Reading from Romans 1 verse 12, Paul writes, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. It's an amazing verse. Did you hear what Paul has just said? He's not only convinced that he has the gifts to strengthen the Roman Christians, he believes they have the gifts to strengthen his faith. Think about how humble that is. Paul the apostle to the Gentiles, the man trained and mentored directly by the risen Christ, the man who writes inspired scripture, who plants churches and brings the gospel where no one has ever heard it before, the man whose towering intellect and education probably supersedes all of them. The most famous Christian of all time says, if I meet with you, I'm sure you're going to have a lot to teach me. Listen, great leaders are humble. They're constantly learning, even from novices. All great leaders are great learners. And one of the greatest causes of failure in leaders is that an arrogant spirit prevents them from learning from others. I once read a biography of Napoleon that fascinated me. Napoleon came up the military ranks as a gunner, someone whose task it was to set the big guns, the cannons. One of the reasons he was so effective on the battlefield is because he was absolutely brilliant in setting up his lines of fire. And he so devastated all his enemies. But later, the very countries whom he had soundly beaten before, the ones he so easily overcame with his brilliance, were hard at work learning his technique and finally were able not only to master his methods, but to know how to defeat them. And why was that? His enemies were learning. Napoleon had stopped learning. He had lost all sense of humility. And when we do that, we also start losing. So we begin to see what Paul means when he says, follow me as I follow Christ. He's thankful for the people that God has called him to lead. He is also praying for them consistently. He wants to be in close proximity to them. He wants to serve them in some fashion so that after he's gone from their presence, they'll be strengthened because of his presence. And we've also learned that he is a deeply humble man. Now, when we come back, we're going to learn some more of his principles of leadership. So stick with me through the break. What an impactful continuation of the marks of spiritual leadership. It's encouraging for me to learn how we can each be great leaders. Of course, this isn't always easy, but as we've learned today, if we spend time in proximity with God's people, serve and minister regularly, and practice humility, well, God can use all of us in leadership. After the break, Dr. Neufeld will talk about hopefulness in leadership and a visionary spirit. Thanks so much for listening today. I hope you've been enjoying this great series on the book of Romans, The Heart of the Gospel. If you'd like to hear more from Back to the Bible Canada, perhaps you might want to consider signing up for our audio mail. Our audio mail program is free of charge and delivers the daily Bible teaching message to your email inbox every weekday. This is a great way to stay connected and not miss any of Dr. Newfeld's messages. Now let's go Back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. While Napoleon was enjoying victory, his enemies were learning. And it's always the one who learns who is the one who wins in the long haul. Learning requires humility. It requires saying even to people who have not advanced as we may have, that there are so many things I don't know, and there are so many things I can learn from others. That's what Paul is saying to the Roman believers. Leadership, 
thankfulness, prayerfulness, the desire to be close to those whom we lead. It requires service. It requires not pride, but humility. Let's have a look at the next feature that we see in Paul. I call this next feature hopefulness. Verse 13 reads, I want you to know, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Notice the sense of expectation he has. Even while he has not been able to get to Rome up till now, even though he has wanted to in the past, he is still expecting to go. There might have been reasons for Paul to be pessimistic about the opportunities to go to Rome. For instance, listen to what he writes to the church in Thessalonica. I'm reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 where he says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because I wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. With all the opposition that Paul had endured, it might have been easy for him to say, well, I guess the thing's just not working out. Looks like Satan's always stopping what I'm trying to do. And then because of horrible setbacks, he becomes a victim. He simply doesn't go on. But here in Romans 1.13, the way Paul puts it, in the passive tense, he says, I have been prevented. And he seems in this case not to be indicating that he's thinking of spiritual warfare, He's content to say that the reason I didn't get to you before now is because God has prevented me. I wanted to come, but God said no. And Paul is ready to submit to that, but that doesn't mean there would not be an opportunity in the future. God may simply have been saying, not now, rather than not ever. Paul had planned a Roman trip many times. Perhaps his plans had failed every time, but he was still planning. Because as soon as God would open a door, he was ready to walk straight through. And why this eagerness to go to Rome? Because, says Paul, I hope to have a harvest among you. He's expecting something, but what does he mean when he says a harvest? Well, the Greek word here is the word fruit. In order that I might obtain some fruit. In in his letters, Paul uses the word fruit in actually three different ways. One of those ways is how he uses it in the book of Galatians, where he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. What Paul might be saying to the Romans is that I want to see you growing in love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. Or he might be saying what he says later in Romans 6, 20 to 22, where he says the fruit is simply a reference to an outcome. If a person is a slave to sin, the fruit is death. If a person is a slave to Christ, the fruit is life. So fruit might simply refer to an outcome. Paul might simply be saying, I want to see positive outcomes of the gospel in your lives. But I don't think Paul means either one of these two things. By fruit, I think he means converts. Listen to Romans 16, verse 5. Greet my beloved Epinatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. The word first convert is actually the word first fruit. In other words, the first time I had a harvest in Asia, says Paul, that harvest is a man whom I now call my beloved Epinatus. And if I understand Paul correctly, here in Romans 1.13, he's saying that I can't wait to come and see who else becomes my beloved brother or my beloved sister because of my efforts. I'm expecting and I'm excited about the converts I will see when I visit Rome. It has me on the edge of my seat and has me going back to God over and over again and asking, when can I go to Rome? 
So in spite of all manner of obstacles to getting to Rome, Paul is convinced that once he gets there, he will have the joy of seeing many people come to Christ. Spiritual leadership always surrounds itself with that kind of hope. We believe that we never labor in vain. There's an outcome, an eternal outcome, through our ministry. May I urge this on you, my hearer. Quite often among Christians, I hear people bemoan the spiritual direction of our country. And by the way, there are all manner of reasons to be both concerned and pessimistic about the spiritual direction of our country. For instance, I'm concerned about how many kids are growing up in the church and are later lost to the Christian faith. I'm concerned with a decline of moral values in our country. I'm concerned for more effective evangelism. The same can be said about the biblical illiteracy among God's people, our comfort level around sins that our forefathers and foremothers would have frankly been shocked about. I'm concerned that what it means to be called an evangelical is becoming almost void of meaning. Look, I'm hardly getting going, and many of you will feel the same way as I do. What amazes me, however, is not that there are real concerns. What shocks me is that for some of us, the belief that it will only get worse is a marker that we're really spiritual. In other words, our lack of hopefulness is for some a sign of spirituality. How do we get to that? Is there no God among us? Has, this, has his power been rendered ineffective by our culture? So are things bad? Yes, they are, no doubt about it. But I'm struck by something else, something of far greater significance. I'm struck by Jesus' words in Luke 10, verse 2, where he says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. I'm also struck by Jesus' words in John 4:35. Lift up your eyes, he says, and see the fields are white for harvest. If you have eyes to see, you might see that God is now calling a people to himself. How different it would have been if all that Paul would have said is how horrible it was in Rome. Now, don't get me wrong. We are but moments away in this letter in which Paul will paint a frightening picture of sin, but that never clouds his hope in the saving power of Christ. I hope you're getting a picture of what Paul meant when he said, follow me as I follow Christ. He has presented us with a leadership style that sees Christ at work in others, is committed to praying for those he leads, expresses his desire to be with God's people, his willingness to strengthen God's people, his humility in, in learning from God's people, his hopefulness in awaiting a harvest. But there's one more last characteristic of effective spiritual leadership, and it's this. Paul has what I call a visionary spirit. If, if you listen to verses 14 and 15, here Paul writes, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul ends this section in a remarkable way. He says he has an obligation, an obligation to preach the gospel. But there is the interesting feature about this. He's going to preach it to the Greeks and to the non-Greeks who were considered barbarians. In the Greek-speaking world, the, the cultured world, a, a world that would have included Greeks and Romans, the world was divided between those who were educated, the upper class, and the rest who were barbarians. Everywhere around, people saw barriers between these two groups. There were those who were considered ignorant and brutish and uncultured and even more incapable of learning the graces of the civilized world. But Paul says, I see no barriers. A person's background is never a barrier to the gospel. 
Leaders are people with a visionary spirit. They see no barriers to the influence of Christ. They're genuinely hopeful because they see in the gospel the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. How about you? Are you a leader? Are you an influencer for Christ? Do you want to be? And if you do want to be, learn the lessons of leadership from a man who changed the world. You know, some time ago, it was popular to, in, in church circles, to define whom we could reach. It was called a homogeneous principle, and so churches would define themselves, and in this came an assumption that the natural divisions between people formed an uncrossable barrier. You could either reach one kind of people or the other, but you couldn't reach both. So are you ministering to builders or baby boomers or busters or Gen Xers or millennials? Every age group had their own special name and specialized needs. And then there were people of various international backgrounds, and you just had to decide which group you were gunning for. Listen to Paul again. I'm going to reach them all, he says. No barriers to the influence of the gospel. What I see in real, genuine spiritual leadership, it, it sees a possibility that no one else sees before that. Real spiritual leadership sees that the future is as bright as the promises of God, and His power knows no end. John, you mentioned that spiritual leadership is hopeful. But some of us think as the time draws on, things are getting worse and worse. But Paul seemed to have more optimism than that. So are things getting better or worse? What's going on? You know, strange way, they're getting better and worse at the same time. I do know that as we draw closer and closer to the second coming of Christ, that indeed, uh, we wait for the rise of the Antichrist and a spirit of lawlessness that's loose in the land. And many of us look at the things that are happening today and wonder whether those days are indeed at hand. True enough. At the same time, I think that believers see a hopefulness because we actually do think that superimposed with the work of the evil one is the work of God. God is drawing a people to himself, and I don't know that the times have ever presented us with greater opportunities than they do today. I think in Canada, we have a greater opportunity to preach the gospel and to allow people to respond to the gospel if we just get hopeful. And so I think we can actually see the two things and say, yeah, maybe they're both true. Yeah, we have a great hope before us, and I guess we shouldn't be discouraged even when things are difficult because of that hope that steadfast truth in Jesus Christ. Thanks so much, John. And tomorrow we continue in our study in the book of Romans, why the nature of the gospel tempts believers to deny it and why the power of the gospel inspires believers to proclaim it fearlessly. Make sure to join us tomorrow, won't you? I hope that today's exploration of Romans 1, 8-15 helped inspire you to become the kind of leader that God has called you to be. Tomorrow, Dr. Neufeld will continue his series in Romans, The Heart of the Gospel, and teach on why the nature of the gospel tempts believers to deny it, and why the power of the gospel inspires believers to proclaim it fearlessly. That's tomorrow, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. If you're a regular listener of the Back to the Bible Canada radio program, you're most likely familiar with our vision. We're committed and passionate about leading people of all ages and backgrounds forward in their relationship with Jesus every day. 
We recently received an encouraging testimony from a listener named Laura who called us to say, I've recently heard the news about Dr. John Newfeld, and I'm looking forward to have him lead your program. I have followed your program since the days of Theodore Epp. It has been a wonderful, encouraging journey for me. Praise the Lord. If you've been impacted by the program, give us a call today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day.